title from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul tells Timothy, the young preacher, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The word perilous means hard to take, hard to do, hard to approach, hard to bear, troublesome, difficult, dangerous. My title is Dangerous Times. My question is, what are the times? What are the last days? Now, some people think we're living in the last days. Some people think the last days are still future. And some people think the last days are past. The one thing we've got to remember by this phrase, eschatos hemera. Eschatos is where we get our word eschatology, the doctrine of last things. It's that you cannot assume the meaning just because it's listed in a context. Just like you can't assume the word world, cosmos, means every single person from Adam until this day, just because you see the word world. And we've made that mistake before. Emphatically, the Gospel of John has at least four different meanings of the word world. The word times is kairos, not chronos. So it's not consecutive time, it's season, epoch, period of time in history. Now what's interesting is Paul told Timothy, having the form of godliness, but denying the the power thereof, from such turn away. So either Paul thought Timothy was living in the last days, or he would be part of the last days because he says the very characteristics of the last days, you turn away. Or Paul thought, Timothy, Jesus could return and resurrect us, or return and raise us up into the glory at any moment now, which of course Paul did not believe, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, Beloved, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto Him, so that you're not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit or by word or by our letter, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Because in fact, it wasn't near. And Paul knew that. Paul knew the the return of Christ bodily was not near. It was not near. Furthermore, we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John, the writer there, says, Little children, it is the last time. Present tense. Eschatos, hora. Time could be hour, as in a literal 60 minutes, but it can be a season, which is often used in the New Testament. Little children is the last season. As you have heard... Antichrist shall come, and he, Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is already here, whereby we know it is the last time. What is the last season? Well, there was the season of the Mosaic Age that was drawing to a close at the time of the overlap, and the new season, the church age, was being introduced at the time of the apostles to be inaugurated to come fully at the destruction of Jerusalem. But John says it is the last time. Beloved, we are living in the last epoch. The gospel church age is the last era. It is the last stage of redemptive history, and we should be thrilled to live in it. 
So when we talk about eschatology, we must in all things be charitable. We must be careful not to assume on the text because we see a phrase or a word. And so for the application of this message, if Paul told Timothy in the last days, you need to withdraw and turn away from such, I take that to mean we can apply that to ourselves today. Because in fact, we are living in the last stage, the last epoch, the last era of redemptive history, looking for the bodily return and the resurrection of the saints of God to live with Jesus forever. Therefore, we're living in dangerous times, dangerous seasons. And I don't need to tell you that. Dangerous seasons. Now, my outline is this. Why are the last days so dangerous? What is the danger or the potential harm? And how can you avoid the danger? Why are the last days, why is the season we're living in so dangerous? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, because the danger is not the period of time, the danger is the people that live in the period. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now when I approach this list, the way I've approached it before, is you can look at it in one of three ways. You can look at it as the quad-decker hamburger. There's two buns with four pieces of meat between the two buns. You can look at it as a club sandwich. There's, there's a top piece of bread, a bottom piece, and there's four layers of meat, bacon, lettuce, tomato, whatever you want on the sandwich. Or you can look at it as two bookends. We've used that before. There's one bookend, there's another bookend, and there's four volumes of books between the two bookends. So we'll pair these in fours for sake of ease, and we'll look at some of these words that Paul says characterizes the last days. Now, the bottom piece of bread which is the root of everything we find in this passage, or the first bookend is, men shall be lovers of their own selves. This is the root of everything that flows out of this text. The four pieces of meat, the four volumes of books, or the club sandwich. When men enthrone themselves and their own wills become the center of their lives, All relationships deteriorate or they are destroyed, both divine and human. To enthrone means a formal ceremony whereby a king or a queen rises and takes the throne and sits down. When men become lovers of their own selves and the center of their world is their own desires, then they expect God to serve those desires and they expect all relationships to serve the enthronement of the self. The other side of that bookend or the top layer of that sandwich or quad decker is lovers of pleasures. Because what is it that men love about themselves? What is it about their self-seeking, self-pursuing, self-loving selves? It is the pursuit of self-centered pleasure. It's all about me. It's all about my kingdom. It's all about what I want. And so when self is enthroned, it is the enthronement of desire and pleasure. That's the problem. 
Now, you and I cannot exempt ourselves from this struggle, can we? We cannot exempt ourselves and say that we don't struggle with the gratification of the flesh which seeks to throne himself, which is us, on the throne of our own life so that we live according to our own will, choices, desires. So what, let's see what flows. Here are the, the three pieces of meat, if you like hamburgers, or if you're an intellectual, then the four volumes of books. The first volume... Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, covetous lovers of money, which often makes people proud and they boast and it's blasphemy because Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 says covetousness is idolatry. It's blasphemy against God because it speaks evil of God and puts money in the place of God. Why? Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasures. And money purchases pleasure. And therefore, it is idolatry. It's blasphemous because God is dethroned and my will is sitting on the throne. That's the first patty or volume. Second volume. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. We live in a culture, in a world, where children are disobedient to their parents. Largely because of the parents who have forsaken God's form of discipline. In Proverbs 22, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Bound is to be tied. That little tyke that you love has a heart tied in knots with foolishness. And God's wisdom says you drive it out. You don't save it out. You don't bring salvation. You drive it out with the loving rod of correction. Not abusively. Not unbiblically. But lovingly inflicting a level of discomfort that's designed to untie the knots. If not, what happens in a society? Foolishness. What does Proverbs say about the fool? The fool has an undisciplined temper. The fool has an undisciplined mouth. The fool has an undisciplined way of dealing with money. The fool is not reliable. You cannot count on him or her. Why? Foolishness is bound there. And the young man and the young woman grows up to be what Proverbs says, foolish. Not my words, God. And it applies to me and everybody in this room. See, largely in these dangerous times, it's because children have forsaken or been forsaken by their parents in training them in the way that God says. We live in such a culture. Disobedient to parents at every hand. Which leads to ingratitude and unholiness, which is impiety. That's the first thing. Ungrateful children. And then you have a generation that grows up ungrateful. Romans 1.21 But when they knew God, they glorified not God, neither were they thankful. Now what flows out of that? Impiety of every kind. Professing themselves to be wise, we know how to train children. See, 
When your theology says that in your child there's a divine spark of goodness, there is something there, he's not fully fallen, it impacts your training. You just try to cultivate that, that goodness instead of knowing he's totally depraved. It influences how you deal with people and children. They profess themselves to be wise, they become fools, like Proverbs. And they change the glory of the uncorruptible God for the glory of corruptible men, four-footed beasts, creeping things. And then Paul says in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. That's impiety. Disobedient to parents, ingratitude, unholy. Filled with all kinds of vices. And then what? Without natural affection. Familial affection. Just natural Loving family affection. In all the ways we see that in our culture, what better way do we see it than when a mother and father has no natural affection for their unborn child and they kill it? Didn't you feel affection for your child even when you didn't know your child? I mean, an excitement, a joy. Now listen, there are other reasons. There's fear, there's pressure, there's people that have regretted it and repented, and there's forgiveness. There is forgiveness in Christ fully, completely, without reservation for those who repent and acknowledge it. But largely, you know why a mother and father aborts their child? Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure. Bottom piece, enthronement of myself and what I want out of life, Top piece, I want pleasure. And I get no pleasure if I have to do that. That's the second level, the second volume. The third volume. Traitors, heady, high-minded. Skipped a volume. Truce breakers, verse 3. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent fears. Truce breakers means cannot be appeased. Truceless. This is somebody who will not enter into a truce. So what do they keep doing? Just keep fighting, keep warring, keep quarreling. You can't appease them. There's no reconciliation. There's no forgiveness. And there's none in our society, is there? Does that describe us? I will not have a truce. I will be right. I will get my way. I do love myself. I do love pleasure. And I get no pleasure in acknowledging that I'm wrong. What happens to your relationships? Demise, destruction, deterioration. This is the danger of the last times. Truce breakers, then slander, false accusers, then incontinent, without self-control. Because if you're in love with yourself and you're in love with pleasure, you have no self-control. There's nothing to restrain you. Because the child has no temperance, because the rod has not been applied. So he's just used to getting whatever mom and dad want him to have, or whatever he demands. And then that tight grows up to be a young man and gets married. And what does he do with his wife? He wants what he wants. So he's angry, he's mad, he divorces because he didn't get what he wanted. And that goes both ways. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, savage. is not in our culture? Whether you agree with, whether in the last days or not, you can agree with that. We are in a culture of Savagery, fierceness, riots, people attacking innocent people. Why? Just for the fun of it. 
even now in sporting events, you don't only have the players brawling regularly. You've got fans and parents in the stands duking it out. I admit I can get pretty passionate about a game, you know, but it's just more common. People are just duking it out with some self-control. We yell a lot, but let's not duke it out, right? These are the dangerous times. The last volume. Despisers are those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. Opposed to those that do good things. Isn't that bizarre? Hostile toward moral people. Peter said, But and if you be followers of that which is good, who is he that will harm you? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, which means what? There are seasons when people despise the fact that you open the door for them or that you want to do something good for them. They are hostile. That's the culture we live in. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors, which means betrayers. Betraying people left and right. Heady, which means reckless. Rash. Moving out with no caution, no consideration of the consequences. Like gender reassignment. Not only the patient... But the doctors, as if they don't even regard what will happen to this child when you start giving them hormone blockers. As just one illustration of the time we're living in. No regard for the person. Just reckless. Why? Let's go back to the bottom bud. I love this. I want it this way. Enthronement of Self and love. This is what I love. This is who I am. This is what I love. I'm in love with pleasure. Okay, you ought to be able to have that. The deification of self-love. Deified. Enthroned. Sitting on the throne. And don't dare say, well, you're really not a king. That produces hostility. And then finally, high-minded, which means to wrap in a mist and a smoke, be sotted, be clouded, intoxicated. With what? It's like you're in the clouds you can't see. You're intoxicated with yourself. Self-love, self-seeking pleasure. That's why Paul said, Timothy... Perilous seasons. Perilous time. Now here's the next question. Why is it that the last days or the last season or the last time or the gospel age is any worse than any other age? In fact, I think they were a lot worse. Genesis 6-5, God saw the wickedness of the earth and that the imagination of the thoughts of every human being was only evil continually, depraved. And there was violence that covered the earth. Now, the, the earth was smaller in terms of the population, but it covered the earth. Whatever the population was of that day, where they lived, covered it. That's pretty bleak. I don't know if we could say that about our current times. Why is this so much more dangerous than then? You say, well, God did wipe it out. Mm, not so. Genesis eight twenty one. God s- smelled the sweet savour of Noah's sacrifice after the... Total flood, we wiped out all people but eight. And he said what? 
man's imagination is only evil from his youth. Nothing changed because grace hadn't changed it yet. And then Jeremiah, in the time of the kings, you, you read us some really wicked, violent things. And Jeremiah says over and over, God says through his pen, the imagination of his heart was only evil. So bad times in the past, but yet Paul says the last days will be dangerous. And we see these kinds of things in many seasons that in the history of man. What, what makes this, this time so dangerous? Two reasons. One, these people are persecuting Christians. That's one reason. Paul would say in verse 12, I think it is, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So you live godly, you get persecuted by the people that are characteristic of perilous times. So in Christianity, the gospel age, you live godly in Christ Jesus, these kind of people will persecute you. And we're living in such a season of growing hostility because of the enthronement of self-love in the pursuit of self-seeking pleasure means you are in my way Christian with your gospel that you keep telling people about because that's what we're supposed to do, right? But that's not the main reason. The main reason is that the people that Paul describes are in the kingdom of God. Wait, you mean they're born again? No, I mean the same way Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be thrust out of the kingdom, which means they were posing as if they were in the kingdom. They're in the church, beloved. That's what makes it so dangerous. They are posing as Christians in churches in America today. And it is dangerous for that reason. Because you get comfortable because someone says they're a Christian and you let your guard down. And so look at this where Paul says they have the form of godliness, the appearance of godliness in some way, but they deny the power thereof. Timothy, it's dangerous. Turn away from them. Heritage, don't be one of them. It's dangerous. Now look at what Paul says concerning these people. Three things about these people that lets us know he's talking about people inside the church, not outside the church. One, they're teachers. Two, they're imposters. Three, they're hearing sermons. And where do you hear sermons? I guess you could do them on podcasts, internet, but in the church. Verse 6, For of this sort, the sort that have the form, the sort of verses 2 and 3 and 4, of this sort are they, they, third person plural, which creep into houses stealthily, stealth, the stealth bomber, under the radar. And what do they do? Lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Women, don't be silly. Well, it was hard for me to say that. But God said it, I didn't. Men, don't be stupid. That's your problem. Silly can mean gullible. Easily persuaded. Men, we're just stupid. Children don't use that word, but it just means ignorant, not knowing something. Blockhead. Idios, the Bible does use that word in the Greek. Idiots, I can say that. 
Now, likely these teachers posing in the, in the church crept into where women were mainly at that time at home with their children. They were working, working hard, but they would lead them captive, laden with sins, led about with divers' lust. What kind of desires? Likely the enthronement of self-love and pursuing some pleasure. I mean, give me a break. I see all these people on social media all day. I'm just looking social media and I'm here with these kids. Give me a break. Don't be gullible. And don't be duped. Follow the wisdom of God. And so if they're learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, that means this sort that creep in stealthily are teaching them something about truth. They just can't get there, but they're bringing some facts about God or Jesus somehow, or, or you wouldn't be duped. It wouldn't be dangerous. That's not dangerous. You know, the guy has a pitched fork, red suit, horns in his head, and a tail coming out of his backside. That, that's not dangerous at all. But this is because they creep and they're persuasive and they capture. And they're learning because they're being taught something. Secondly, Paul says, Verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of perishing minds, corrupt, reprobate, unapproved, adokamos. You know the old western we talked about where the cowboy puts the coin in his mouth to see if it's genuine? And what is he pulls out his gun, what does that tell you? Hey, you just gave me an ungenuine coin. This guy is adokamos. He is unapproved by God. How, does, how, did, how did the two magicians resist Moses? You remember, you know the story, by imitation. Imitation. They looked the part, they played the part, they did the part. They threw down the rods, turned into serpents, they, they repeated four miracles. Unless you were discerning which way of you would have gone. Well, I've been in Egypt all this long, I'm going to stay with these guys. They were imposters, like an imitation handbag or an imitation watch. It performs well for a period of time. Listen to what Paul says. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be made clear unto all men which can see it as theirs also was. See, imposter, and then all of a sudden, you could discern the difference. Imitations are dangerous. They look good, they perform well. And we're pulled into them because we get the look of the original, but sometimes we know that. I, I buy the, the imitation, it's cheaper, but if you don't know, you thought you had the real thing. So they're teaching, they're impersonators of truth, and they are imitators, and then finally turning to the people, not the teachers, in chapter 4, verse 2, Timothy preached the word. Why should you do that, Timothy? Because of the charge before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Timothy, of whom you will appear, who is the judge of the living and the dead. He's the judge of all the earth, and we will stand before Him. He's your Savior. He's your Redeemer. But He's the judge. You stay with the Word. You don't give them your ideas, your opinions, your stories, your experience, what happened to you. You expose the Word of God. That will help them avoid the danger. 
Why should you do that, Timothy? Verse 3, for the time will come. Kairos, what time? The last day times. When they, who are they? Two through four. Where are they? Will not endure sound doctrine. Well, they're listening to sound doctrine. The word here is where we get our English word hygiene. Healthy, sound, good. The only way you won't endure sound doctrine is that you're hearing it. These people are in churches and they're not going to endure sound doctrine. Why not? After their own lust, the enthronement of desire. That's not what I want. It's not what I want to hear. I don't like to hear that guy. I don't want that. Well, you're susceptible. After their own lust, they shall accumulate heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Ear that needs to be scratched. They, they want, the metaphor is they want to hear something pleasant. Why, church? Lovers of selves, lovers of pleasing things. Therefore, I want the teacher who's going to tickle my ear. We live in a day of a proliferation of teachers at your fingertips. You must be careful and discerning that you're not infatuated with the teachers rather than the master teacher. I'll have a little confession myself. Years ago, I was riding with my wife and in-laws and so impressed with my father-in-law and still am, by the way. A soldier of the cross. I I made the statement, I I think I'd believe what Elder Bradley said just because he said it. My mother-in-law spoke up and she rebuked me rightfully. Do you listen to a man just because he said it? Because you're so infatuated with the man? Be careful. You're susceptible. If he preaches the word, which we listen to teachers, preach the word. But don't get lost with the man, his intellectualism. Don't be carried captive, Paul says, by philosophy, intellectualism, vain deceit, and not after Christ. Be careful. Or you'll be led captive. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Why, church? Because of the the two bookends. The enthronement of self-love and the self-pursuit of pleasure, which is the world we live in. So the danger that Paul tells us about is a danger because we'll be persecuted by these people, but because these people are in American Christian churches today. In fact, just in this city, I was talking to a man recently, the second Baptist church I heard of, that now has affirmed gender relationships. That is of the same gender. A Baptist historical church, and we should be shocked by any church, but they have moved their position and they're not enduring sound, healthy doctrine because the enthronement of self I'll determine for myself what I love, what I don't love, and what pleases me, and therefore God is dethroned. Now, here's the next question. 
if that's the danger, and the, the danger is found in people that are saying they're Christians, then what is the potential harm? Well, it's what we've already said in chapter 4. They will not endure, which means the danger is you won't either. Just listen to a few passages in this letter that Paul said to Timothy. Timothy, chapter 2. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. I endure all things therefore for the elect's sake, that they, the elect, may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who's Paul enduring for? The elect of God. Who's he preaching to? Everybody. But he's enduring. Verse 12. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. That Greek word is hupomane, which means endurance. If you endure, you have the great assurance you will reign with him one day. But if you apostatize, you have no assurance. What's Paul talking about? Endurance. Chapter 4, we just said verse 3. They will not endure sound doctrine. Verse 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Verse 12. Demas hath forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world, he didn't endure. I don't know what happened to Demas. But I know this, he didn't endure. The danger of the last days or the last season is coming from within the church. And the danger is that rather than turning away from such, we turn away from God. That's a danger. Now, what I'm concerned about and what you want to be concerned about is how do we avoid such a danger? How are you going to avoid it? How are you personally going to avoid it? First of all, you've got to see the threat is real. That's that's the first problem. That's not real. Is Paul duped? I mean, what is he doing? The threat is real. Because endurance by the people of God, is through the work of grace. And when grace is working, people endure. But they're enduring through the means that God has given to avoid it. So let's see what that means is. How do we avoid falling away? Alright, let's look at chapter 3, again at verse 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lust ever learning and never able to come to the epignosis of truth. Epignosis, epi is an intensified preposition. That means here we're not just talking about knowledge, a deeper, more correct, accurate experiential knowledge. If I were to illustrate gnosis, I would say, what if I said to you, rather, I know how to fly an F-35A fighter jet. I do. Of course, you'd think me a liar. Brother Adam would be the first one to challenge me since he does fly planes. I said, no, no, really. A man who has spent his life flying those jets, I know that's a new jet, let's just go with illustration, wrote a book on it. And he gave every detail of how to fly a jet. I read the book, I know how to fly the jet. That's gnosis. 
That's not epignosis. Epignosis is when you get in the cockpit and you suit up and put that impressive, cool helmet on your head and you got the gloves and the suit on and you feel the exhilaration of going through the sky in a jet. That's epignosis. These people know truth. They hear truth. They teach truth. These teachers are imposters, but they don't know truth. You see, beloved, the way we avoid being lovers of pleasures and lovers of self with the enthronement of self is just the opposite. The enthronement of God to the place of supremacy in your heart so that you experience the truth of the love of God over the love of pleasures so that God is supreme. How? By the truth of God. By the truth of God. Because if they have the form, which is the outward appearance of godliness, but they don't have the power, then the power must be the enthronement of God's love because they don't love God, they don't have pleasure in God, they don't know God, it's when you and I, by the truth of Scripture and the Gospel, God is enthroned in Christ so that He is, as you just sang, your love is my delight. Alright, look at First Timothy 6 where we had the Scripture reading this morning. It's the power of truth that the Holy Spirit brings to our soul as we know the truth, hear the truth, read the truth, disciple the truth, pray the truth. We are asking the Holy Spirit to do something for us where God is enthroned with that truth so that we love Him because He first loved us. We are delighted that God would shockingly, amazingly, radically save desperate, no good sinners like you. And me. That thrills my soul. So we've got to remember the sheer mercy of God saving people that are nothing. Had no will for Him. No delight in Him. No choice for Him. And He came and He saved their soul. That is what we learn about the Savior in the Word of Truth. Look at 1 Timothy 6. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, healthy words, sound words for which the people are departing from, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according or after to godliness. There's a doctrine that leads to godliness. These men are teaching otherwise when they creep into houses or into churches. What doctrine leads to godliness? What is godliness? It's just simply being like God, being like Christ, right? Taking on the character of Christ. What would godliness look like in this context? It would look like submissive service of a slave, verses 1 and 2. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. Slavery in the Bible is not condoned. The gospel came to a culture where millions of people were slaves. Many treated good, some treated bad. The gospel is the foundation for the eradication of slavery. And it should be eradicated everywhere the gospel comes. And it was, eventually. And it is. 
But our main aim is not my well-being. It's the name of God and His doctrine not vilified. How is it vilified? Well, because the servant won't submit. And you won't submit to your boss. And you talk about him or talk about her. And you complain about him all the time. And they say, is this the God of that Christian? Is this the God of this servant? Our main concern is the glory of God and the name of God in Jesus Christ and that His name, His doctrine, is not spoken evil of. Jesus was a submissive servant, even unto death. His death redeemed us. Our service does not. We're called on to be godly, which is to imitate the Savior's submissive service, even when it's hard. Even when you have a froward boss or a good boss. 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit. It's acceptable to God. There are parameters on that and and ways in which there's legalities and all that. You you understand that. But just as a matter of submitting to someone who's not kind, he's he's kind of critical, he's, he's not kind with his words. When you're a lover of self and lover of pleasure, it's all about me. You're not going to do that to me. But when you're a lover of God through truth, you want His name to be glorified. Now, caveat, we all here wish we could say, never done that, never been that kind of servant, but we have. And we have a Redeemer whose name is Jesus. And we have forgiveness. And we have the help of the Holy Spirit to grow. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. You're a believer. Let me go. Don't make me work so hard. I mean, make those unbelievers work hard, but I don't have to work that hard. No. Don't despise them. But count them as what? Brothers, beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, which they were, because they're lovers of self, they are not teaching a doctrine that leads to godliness. Now, the godliness is submissive servitude. What's the doctrine that leads to godliness? Verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of Jesus Christ, the doctrine which leads to godliness, he is proud, he doesn't know anything, but a doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, that's a parallel to chapter 3, corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth means deprived of the truth, despoiled, robbed of truth, which means... To be robbed of possessions or something valuable. So here this man is teaching otherwise. He's robbed of the value of truth because he's destitute. That's what he's deprived of. Now he has some truth because he's teaching something about Jesus. But he's teaching the wrong doctrine which doesn't lead to godliness. It doesn't lead to submissive. Maybe he's saying, look, you, you don't need to be a servant anymore. You're You're free. You're a believer. You tell that believing master to treat you differently. You tell him you have rights. You tell him, well, just tell him the truth. You're in love with yourself. What is the doctrine that produces character like Christ that's submissive even in times when it's difficult? Now, this man supposes that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. He supposes that godliness is a source of gain, like an American kind of gospel. That if your godliness, what it ought to get you is some kind of gain. That doctrine does not produce godliness. It produces self-centeredness. Where's my gain? 
It's not here. It's not being in this marriage. It's not being in this church. It's not being in this family. It's not being submissive. But godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. When God is enthroned to the place of supremacy in your heart, you're satisfied with God. You're being satisfied with God because He's the source of gain. Now let me show you how that is necessary to be godly. Because without it, you are not going to stay as a servant. You're not going to stay in that marriage. You're not going to stay in that job. Now you're free to get another job. You're not free to get another marriage. Because you're not content with God. Content with God's will. He said this. Content with God's rule. Why are you there in that place? He put you there. Why is Joseph a slave in Egypt? Because of the sovereign decree and will of God. Period. And of course, comma, excuse me, comma, the, the evil men that put him there, right? That's true. That's real. But they would not have touched Joseph if God hadn't willed it, wanted it for holy purposes. You can wrestle with that all day long, but that's the truth of the Scripture. And I have wrestled, and so have you. Right? Content with His will, content with His rule, content with His love. Why? Okay, I'm with you, preacher. Why did He not stop me from getting here? Why did He let this happen? Because He loves you, that's why. He loves you. He loves you. Stay in His love. See, without content, without the power of truth, without the power of the Word of God by the Spirit, you're not going to endure, and I'm not either. Life is too short. I've got too much I want to do. I, I'm not staying here. I'm not listening to that. This is the Word of your God. How do we avoid the enthronement of self by the enthronement of God and just being satisfied with the Word of God, with the will of God, what He says for our lives. That's not easy. That doesn't mean my, my desires always just say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm glad He said that. No. We submit. We want to be like Jesus. And we rest in His love. We rest in His love. Remember, this is becoming my favorite passage in the Bible. I love this passage. I'm sorry. I, every other week I know I do this. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So abiding in His love produces what? Submissive servitude. 1 Timothy 6. Staying in His love produces what? Submissive servitude. How are you going to stay there? These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. Well, He spoke it to them, the apostles, not to us. That's right. And how did Jesus speak it to you? His words are in this book. The power of truth, the power of His words is the power of His love for you. And He says, stay with me. I know what I'm doing. As if I had to say that. (laughs) Jesus, you know what you're doing? Okay, all right, yeah, you do. Even when you don't know what He's doing, and that's, that's much of the time. Even when you say, I don't know that I feel His love. Okay, stay with Him. 
with the truth. I don't feel delight right now. Stay there. I have seen in my life young boys that couldn't hit the side of a barn with a basketball. And what happened? They stayed with it. And things changed. They stayed. If you can stay with something so little, how can you not stay with the Word of God? Even when I didn't feel anything, I feel wretched. I, yeah, I feel like it's dangerous time, and I feel like I'm feeling the weight of the danger. Stay, Jude says. Keep yourself in the love of God. Just stay right under the waterfall of God's love, looking for the mercy of God. How do you do that? With the truth of God. With the faith once, one time, once for all time, delivered to the saints. And you have it in your hands. Are you staying with it? If not, how do you know you're not already being drawn away? You say, well, I am in church, preacher. So were they. I can say, I'm preaching. So were they. Right? Beloved, go back to God's Word. I know somebody here has left it. I know you're not reading it. Jesus doesn't say, well, I gave you a chance, sorry. He says, come, come, come. Bring what hurts. Bring your scars. Bring your pain. Bring your sin. But come by the Word. It is the life-giving Word of the Savior who loves you and gave Himself for you. And then finally, the power of truth is the power of contentment in God's love, God's rule, God's will. It's the power of loving His appearing. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, Timothy. Just fill it up in every part. Because I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I'm already being offered like a drink offering is the phrase here. The time of my departure, a metaphor that means setting sail by being unmoored by, from one dock, sailing to another. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, I'm about to set sail. So you thought that imagery in Lord of the Rings and uh, all, all those science fiction uh, movies was totally off? Where'd they get that? Like setting sail on a ship. But you're not going where they're going, brother. Going to paradise with Jesus. Paul is about to set sail a final time. I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder how he feels. I wonder how he feels about the fact that he's on death row. And he was. He's in the Mamertine prison. I'm going to prove to you that he was a rejoicing man. He uses the same word in Philippians 2.17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. If I get my head cut off for you, which he did, I rejoice and joy with you. I guess he expected the people to to rejoice that he's getting his head cut off. He's rejoicing. I know also from verse 7, I have fought a good fight. He told Timothy in chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Paul has done that. Just resting in Jesus. Holding on to Jesus as Jesus holds on to him. I have finished my course, Acts chapter 20. He said he wanted to finish his course with joy. He has done so. He finished with joy. Not because he has some power in himself, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of what? Truth. I kept the faith. 
That which was deposited to Paul, he guarded it. He was the custody of, custodian. He deposited it to Timothy and other men. How did he guard it? How did he guard it? With joy. He loved it. We must keep the faith the same way with the power of truth, the power of contentment in God's love, the power of the love of Jesus, which is everlasting. He loves you, young man. He loves you, young lady. Follow Him. You will not be disappointed. But you've got to dethrone desire in yourself. The essence of Christianity is the obliteration of self. Not the enthronement, but it's the exaltation and the enthronement of Christ, your mighty King, who loves you. So what does Paul say? Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. I ne- I was, why do you feel comfort in that, Paul? I mean, I've never felt good in front of a judge. A couple times I've been before a judge. I don't know why, I'll tell you later, but I have been before a judge. Never felt good. Shaking. He's a righteous judge that's going to give Paul a crown of righteousness because he purchased it for Paul. If Paul were there standing on the basis of whether he'd kept the law or not, like some people do in a courtroom, say, yeah, I was driving fast. I guess I just plead mercy. Now the law is not just unless you get the full weight of driving too fast. In fact, the law is no good if you didn't get it. I know in human law, you know. All right, I'm going to be merciful this time. God can't do that, friend. Not at the expense of justice. If He says, I'll have mercy at the expense of justice, He's not right. If He says, I'll be right, then there's no mercy. But if the judge is Jesus Christ, they meet. And He's merciful. And he's just in the person. So the judge who shall judge in the quick and dead, uh, the quick and the dead, is Paul's friend. He's Paul's savior. So he's rejoicing. And then he says this in verse eight. He says he shall give me at that day, the day of his departure, the day of his death. He won't wait for the body. He'll get it then. But the body is coming. But not to me only, but unto all them also that. Love His appearing. Love is a perfect tense verb. I don't have to tell you what that means because I've told you 10,000 times. Right? Is that when you say ad nauseum? Something like that? Something completed in the past with ongoing results. In the past, completed action, you fell in love with Jesus. That's not going away because Jesus first loved you. Now, what's the ongoing result of the completed action? You keep loving His epiphany. The Greek word, you get an English word. His appearing. Hope is sustaining you so that you avoid the danger of turning away from God and turning with the people that will not endure because you're loving, you're looking for the return of Christ. And when He turns and gives you a crown of righteousness or returns, what will that mean, Psalm 17? I shall behold His face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. The whole aim of righteousness is your satisfaction in God. All right, now let's look at the thread again together. 
I'm way over time. I'm sorry. Do thy diligence to come unto me shortly, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now tell me what happened. He stopped loving the appearing. He enthroned self-love, and he wanted to pursue pleasure, so he fell in love with the present world, and he didn't endure. He departed Paul's gospel. Now, why would I think that the same wouldn't happen to me? My assurance of safely dwelling in the sanctuary of God is that I'm looking for glory. And that looking, power of truth, power of contentment, power of Christ's love, His return, is going to make me stable so that I don't fall in love with this present world to the point of departure. You struggle with that, and I do too. That's the danger. That's why it's danger, dangerous. And the way we avoid the danger is being in love with Jesus through acknowledging the word of truth that God has given us. Given us. So we pray, we ask, and we know that the spirit of truth is the one that causes us, keeps us to love his truth. And so we ask him to come. We beg Him, we ask again and again in prayer and reading. We say, Lord Jesus, come. And He comes. He keeps coming. Because He's good and He's gracious, He's kind, and He loves us. So, beloved, if you haven't come, come. Come to the waters. You will not be denied. Come if you're weary. He'll give you rest. Come if you're burdened. He'll lift the burden. Come if you have sin. He's taken the sin. Come and experience the life-giving love of the Savior that loves you and gave Himself for you. Let's pray. Father, You're an amazing God. How gracious You are to take sinners vain and wild and make them as a little child who all of us here have enthroned ourselves on the seat of of our own kingdom and have tried to rule and reign according to what we love, what we want, what we desire, and what gives us pleasure. And yet, Lord, you, an amazing act of sovereign mercy, sovereign because nobody influenced you, sovereign because it's not conditional, sovereign because it's owing to your choice alone. And you came and you rescued and you are rescuing. And we thank you for opening our eyes to see the gospel. Help us, Lord, to avoid the danger and to dwell safely in the arms of Jesus where he keeps us safe. We dwell safely in and with you. But let us use the means of this safety, which is the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.